Hi, this is Emily Bazelon. We're here for Slate Plus, and this week we're going to talk more about the making of this show with producers Alvin Melleth and Verilyn Williams. So I got us together for Slate Plus. Hello, Slate Plus. To talk about the making of this show, and in particular how we approach and think about race and class in making the show. That sounded very academic, like I was just <laughs> introducing a class in school. You mean because you're talking about the criminal justice system and that mostly means black and brown folks? Yeah, and the whole, like, the making of, and yeah, that phrase seemed kind of academic <laughs> to me. But so I think this is, like, a fraught topic, but also a crucial one because we're making a podcast about mostly black and brown people who are mostly not well off. And like, that's not me. I'm a upper middle class white person. I'm really interested in problems of poverty, which are often experienced in cities by black and brown people. But that doesn't mean that I'm anything like them. Um, And so it was really important to me to try to find journalists of color to work on this with. Mm -hmm. So Virlin, you were the producer on the show and we started working on it just like a year ago, I think. Yeah, and, I, and you know, I'll go ahead and admit that before coming to Slate, you had been on, like, the Brian Lira show on WNYC once, and I was just like, I need to meet this woman one day. Um, and I, started, I think I started listening to the other podcast you do here at Slate, um, the Political Gap Fest, and I'd always agree with you out of everyone else <laughs> on the show. And I just felt like, okay, for a podcast that's for, with three white people, <laughs> like, the fact that I keep it, you know, so, like, when you, when I, when I found out about this opportunity and I realized what it was about, it felt like a weird immersion I'm, I'm doing this weird thing with my hand listeners can't see of like a lot of different factors that i knew about you already and i was and i think that's a big part of why i was like yes absolutely yes which i was super grateful for and we got a lot of tape together we did a lot of reporting we did a lot of thinking about the show and then to my great sadness you left and took another job at wnyc which is great i am proud of you <laughs> i am happy for you but i needed to find someone to come in and make the show and then I was incredibly lucky and you helped me recruit Alvin to come in and do that. I mean, up until this point, I am not aware of any of this, really. I just got a call from Jack Hitt. Who's the editor of the show. Who's the editor of our show and who happens to be like one of the most, um, what's the right way to put this? I think he could sell ice to an Eskimo. (laughs) He just gets me on the phone. It's like, there's this thing with Emily Bazelon. You've heard of Emily Bazelon. I don't think I talked I don't, I don't think I said three words. And by the end of the call, I was like, all right, I guess I have to do this. And you had a full-time job. I had a full-time job. <laughs> <laughs> and I was nervous on your behalf. Like, oh, yeah, I remember was that Was it really call. a good idea? I really wanted you to come, but I was a little nervous. And yeah. then you guys talked to each other, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, we had a phone call. And I remember, the thing I remember from that phone call was Virulin saying, Emily is like one of the good white people. <laughs> Just like... <laughs> I was so honored when you yeah. told me that. That's I was a like, big deal. Score. Yes. That's a real big deal. Because I think like with, with with these kind of this kind of work is so intimate, and so you just want to cut to the chase. Because totally. I think being a producer of color and doing this type of narrative long form work, you just have these moments with white people in journalism where you're just like, you don't get it. And actually, my job is to make make things is not to explain and give you an analysis. It's of funny. Race. I've been thinking about that, and it's like. 
I didn't, we didn't really have to go, like, all you had to do was say that, and I knew exactly what mm. you meant. And it rec- I recognize now that, like, oh, actually, like, what does that mean yeah. that she's one of the good white ones? But I, like, immediately knew what you were talking about. And I feel like it's a shorthand that happens, yeah. especially with producers of color, where we're like, okay, <laughs> is it a bad white person or, a, or, like, a good white person? And there is, of course, a middle ground there. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. And by, and like, bad and within the context of work. Like, I think one of the yeah. things as someone that does care deeply about diversity in media and, um, you know, amplifying and centering voices of color, ultimately, I want to make good journalism. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is first and foremost. And I think, you know, of course, because of who I am and my identity and stuff, that comes up like wanting to amplify these things. But I don't want to always have to fight it with it every single day. Yeah. It's like sometimes... Like, actually, it's enough of a full-time job to just try and, like, shape a story into something that yes. anyone else on the planet would want to yes. listen to. And then, then on top of all that, layering it with all this, like, work about diversity and about... It's just, it's a lot. Yeah, fighting. It's like, I feel like a fight. It's always a fight. So, one thing I'm thinking about listening to you guys is something that I, like, that I think about a lot that I think Van Jones said, which is that with issues of race and even racism, there are, like, felony offenses. This is a good analogy for our show. And then there are, like, misdemeanors and traffic Mm. tickets. Uh And I feel like there's no way that, I mean, that I have not made and will not continue to make mistakes that involve race working on the show. Like, however much I'm going to try, it's not my lived experience. I'm going to get stuff wrong. So, you know, Virlin, I completely understand your feeling like it's not your job to explain. But since you are stuck in a majority white world, especially in journalism and radio journalism, how do you guys think about that spectrum? Is that true that there are like small things that go wrong? And how do you when do you feel like, OK, yes, like oh, it's forgivable. And when do you feel like, you know what, I can't deal with this? I think it's in the, my ability to be you know, you don't mean any harm and you're like, there's mistakes that are, you know, missteps that happen. My ability to call it out in the moment. Like if I'm in a situation where I feel like you don't get it and then you're not able to like care that you don't get it. That's when I, I, I can't function. Um, but if I feel like, I, I feel like I've never, there was never a moment where I wasn't able to say like, actually no, Emily, or but, like, I think sometimes the biggest thing with, white people <laughs> let me tell you about white people <laughs> tell me about white people well the, the biggest thing is like the instinct to want to act colorblind or the instinct to want to act like um, it's not an uncomfortable situation or you know you're not a, a white person doing documenting black folks black and brown folks like that to me like the the, the instincts of like not one of those like call it out and call a thing a thing is the thing that I can't I don't even know like it's like I, I don't know how to engage with that because I am so blunt about it mm-hmm. like I almost always say the thing well it also must feel like a lie to you yes it does it feels that you have to acknowledge it otherwise it's not it's not authentic I mean like I just it was depressing going to the courthouse day after day and just you know we were at a point looking for a central character and I just remember talking that to a lot moment, of talking people. to a lot of different people and hearing the similarities, but also hearing the nuances of people's lives. And and it just could be very, it's like, you know, it's overwhelming just to think about this. And so to not be able to, to me doing that work as a black woman is just, it's just going to feel different. And we were talking to all low-income black men. Yeah. yeah. 
And did, was there a point where in the like casting process for this? I mean, this is the thing that people don't really talk very much about mm-hmm. in the be- behind the scenes when casting. you're looking for even a when character. you said casting, I like no, you make it sound like I mean that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're like looking for this person, and it's I I used to work in like advocacy, right? And mm-hmm. so in advocacy, you're always looking for the sort of like. Uh, like shining star person who like actually doesn't always represent what like the most Majority people experience, people. but they're yeah. sort of the A plus student. They're the you know the Rosa Parks, the but little we were not that, looking but, for that person, <laughs> right? And so yeah. I'm curious in the search for it, like what were you looking for? Well, so I've been working on a book for a couple of years largely involving gun court in Brooklyn. And I made a really deliberate decision in the beginning not to focus on the student star. There was a lawyer who had a client like that, and she kept, like, she wanted to hand him to me. And I, he was a lovely guy, but I was just like, no, everybody, that's the easy way out. And I'd already, I wanted, oh, I'm finally going to get to say this. I wanted to have this project be about hard cases, cases that were not like, oh, this person, you know, just did this one little thing wrong and otherwise is like, everything's rosy. It's just this one transgression because I just, that's not typical of the criminal justice system and people who get caught up in it. And I wanted to make readers think about and listeners think about harder cases. So I was pretty Mm -hmm. determined that we were not going to have the A student. And so it took a lot of work because we were looking for someone who wanted to talk about their case for whom it was safe to talk. That wasn't true for everybody. Mm -hmm. And who would come to the studio. Yeah. (laughs) But I do remember speaking of the safety thing, which is another thing I thought a lot about because, you know, I remember you told so many people like, just so you know, this is just we don't know what we're going to do to tape, what we're going to do with this tape and we won't use it without getting your permission. And then this, you know, young person will spill their guts about what they did Mm -hmm. and didn't do. And you're just like... <laughs> There's so much responsibility in that. Totally. And right now we're going back to people and asking their permission. Mm-hmm. I just forwarded Alvin one of those notes the other day. And also just trying to be really judicious and careful about the tape we use so that we're not putting people at unnecessary risk. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you had been spending time, like it was also, you know, walking into that into the Brooklyn gun court and a lot of the legal aid lawyers knowing you, like a lot of, you know, the, you were, it was clear that you had spent t- a lot of time in that building. <laughs> you just winced because, um, yeah, I mean, even the short amount of time that I worked on it, I had spent a lot of time in that building. There's a lot of waiting in gun court. Hallway. Uh, hallway was hall- our friend. Oh, my God. And the little conference rooms. Oh, my God. <laughs> um and I think like that also, you know, when we talk about the quote unquote good white person, like a lot of times journalists are parachuting in and parachuting out of people's lives to tell a particular story that they already think they know and then they leave and that's it. You know, so the fact that you had already spent so many years there. So I have a strong memory of this one moment which connects to our subject. So we were we spent time with several different social workers, one of whom was an African American young woman. And you we were interviewing her and at one point you said, like, Okay, I got accused of making everything about race, but I just wanna know like how you feel like being African American factors into your working with kids. And she gave this great answer. But what I really remember was that you were sort of apologizing for asking such a good question. Mm. And I thought, like, oh, my God, of course you should ask that question. It's totally mm. relevant. But I I think it goes, goes back to my awareness that not every black person in every position want to talk about the fact that they're a black person in that position. Yeah. And so I'm really sensitive to that. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that that's what I was asking her to do. 
That's totally a good answer. Yeah. And I'm getting goosebumps as I think about it because I just feel like it's just a moment where you're just like, all right, here we go. We got to talk about this thing again. <laughs> you're, you're nodding, Alvin. No, I'm just thinking about having to ask that question. I mean, if you want to get into like South Asian racial politics, that's, I mean, a, that's whole a whole other thing. thing. Oh, yeah. right. We should say that you're yeah. Indian yeah. American, right? Yep. Which is another complicated thing in all of this because, like, I'm not black. I'm not the same person that is, like, the character in this story. Yeah. When you hear Tarari tell a story, like, what, what you, like, just bringing all the things that make you, like, how do you relate to, to this work? I mean, like, for me, a lot of it is in the way that he talks. And the way that he talks reminds me of people back home, like, where I'm from. Where are you from? I'm from New York. And he'll have these things where he's like... Uh, I was like type anxious about this. Like there's like yeah. these like little things where I'm like it just kind of has like a nice like yeah. texture of so home. That's, another, that's a connection. Which I mean, I'm also from New York, yeah. which feels in this media world feels relatively, relatively rare. rare. So how much do you think that helps with this show, which is so much a show of New York City and of Brooklyn, which is not the Bronx, but isn't like well, I don't know. What do you think? I think being from the Bronx and being able to say like you know. Where did you go to high school? Or, you know, particularly if someone tells me they're from Brooklyn or the Bronx, I think I could be able to connect in a very different way. Um, I also did hyperlocal journalism in central Brooklyn, which, a.k.a. Black Brooklyn, (laughs) which is Crown Heights, Bed-Stuy, Brownsville, Which is where all the young people Which is where all the, (laughs) yes. And so when they're talking about, you know, this um, East New York and Brownsville, like what I kind of look at it as like the heart of stop and frisk right there's like when you look at the stories that came out at the height of that practice which is now supposed to be illegal in new york city just how that that work kind of intersects with the fact that all these kids are in gun court in the first place it it just it's kind of like the other side of work that i've already been reporting on i this is something i work through a lot when working on scripts like this is like what do you translate and what do you not translate like what do you I things? never translate anything I think in the script there was something that I wrote I'm happy you guys don't explain this oh yeah I remember oh saying. yeah it was the use of the word naked yeah I'm out here naked yeah and like I think so like maybe like a big part of my career has also been about like being like we need to explain what this is and I'm like actually we don't this is a great <laughs> code switch episode yes, one of my a- favorite code switch mm-hmm. episodes all about exactly this question because we explain things we think are alien and foreign now obviously so I write about li- complicated legal issues a lot so I feel like a lot of burden of explanation so that anyone will understand anything yeah but when you talk about culture and vocabulary it's different right because you're making a decision about what's normative and yeah. what's not yeah and who your audience is yes well like, that's the real thing right it's like who are these things for yeah and it's like I try and convince myself it's for everybody but like I don't know. In my darker moments, I'm like, well, actually, like, who is this for? Like, who listens to podcasts? I just make an assumption that it's, like, black women. (laughs) Good. I make everything for black. May you be be correct about that. Like, my, you know, and I'm kind of borrowing this from um, Chessie McMillan Cotton, who is a sociologist and just wrote a book called Thick. And, you know, I interviewed her recently and she said, like, you know, in her life's work, if anyone reads her work or hears her speak and if there's any black women that feel seen and they that through her, that's what she does this for. And I was just like, <gasps> that's what I do this for, you know. So mm-hmm. I, it's it goes back to like, what you know, like 
maybe this is like a little self-centered of me but i always like this is a career for me this is like work that i'm doing like i when i die like this is a part of what to quote a beyonce song i want to to people to feel like okay this represents what i stand for in this that's a high standard you're holding yourself to. Yeah. I mean, which is great, but like that's big. Actually. I hold myself to a much lower standard. I want to be clear about that. <laughs> What's your standard? <laughs> I don't know that I have one. <laughs> I don't know. I take. I think about the translation thing differently. I think. I think part of it is like, like growing up with two parents who aren't from here. Yeah. I feel like most of my the thing that I think makes me a good journalist is like spending most of my time growing up like trying to translate the world that I was experiencing to my parents like I remember I have like strong memories of going out to restaurants and they would just be so nervous because they just Mm. didn't know how to order and so I would order for my whole family when I was like eight or nine years old I think a thing that journalism that's good can do regardless of what it's about is like help you step into somebody else's shoes even for a little bit Mm -hmm. and there are I think there are these things where like you have to step back sometimes and be like okay if you aren't in this world are you going to understand this and there are, like, choices that you should make. And you should just be clear about those choices, I think. Mm-hmm. But I think there are times where it's like, okay, it might be worth explaining what this means in the context of what they're saying it in. Like, there's a couple of times in the show, I mean, there's this m- moment, I, I actually think I remember referencing it in a script. We, like, explained what the word beef was. And I was like, no, that's too much. Mm-hmm. We can't be doing that. Because in the context of when yes. they're saying beef, like, it's it's clear. pretty clear. That's yeah. to- so that word is in my book, and yeah. someone who read it really early on was like, "I don't know what this is." White person. Yes, totally. But, it, but, but it's I was context clues. Is, is well, right. I was a little bit like, "Come on, can't you pick it up? Like, what else could it be?" Yeah. But when someone tells you they don't understand something, so I think what I anyway, I I think what I did in my book was that I reduced the number of references to it, but then I tried to surround the remaining references with like as much clarity as possible. Yeah. It's tricky, though. But it's, it goes back to, like, if you are a good storyteller in any medium, the idea is that you show, not tell, right? And so I don't, like, it seems yeah. like all of a sudden that rule doesn't apply when it comes to where is that, you know, a, white, a mainstream white audience won't understand. Like, why all of a sudden does it, do we, are we so comfortable with explaining things that we would normally be like, let's show this. Like, let's figure out how we can, you know, put it in a content which is self-explanatory. Yeah. Well, I guess I also think if you over-explain, there are certain people for whom the explanation is how you lose them, right? Yes. If yeah. you over-explain, you're telling the people who get it immediately it's not that it's this not isn't for, them. for you. Yeah. 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 There was another moment. Actually, this is one where I think we disagreed. Um, we had a character saying, I think the sentence was, I brought the gun to school. You know, I brought the hammer to school. Oh, yeah. And hammer in that context, he's referring back to the gun because like hammer is something that you would call a gun. And both you and Jack were like, I, we got to get the hammer out. What does a hammer mean? Like, the hammer's the gun. It just so happened that he sort of breathed into the next sentence. So, like, it would be impossible to slice off hammer yeah, without, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. No, producer yeah, problems. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. what? Like, is this that big of a deal? Like, can't we just keep it? Like, it makes sense in the context. I don't know. Right. Well, that's another problem that journalists struggle with all the time. Because if you make anything a little bit difficult for your listener, you're afraid you're going to lose them. On the other hand, like we were saying, you can sort of go too far. And I think these issues come up with race and class a lot in our work, right? Actually, this is something I love about audio, which is not some a medium I've ever re- worked in before like this, which is that tone of voice and yes. ev- ev- the way so people much. talk communicate so much. And yeah. these, as a print journalist, you're stuck with these 
tricky decisions about dialect because, yes. you know, what we normally do is like people who speak like standard English, we just correct the millions of mistakes that we all make. But then when someone's speaking, you know, in a way that's like one standard deviation different, whether mm-hmm. they're an immigrant or black or whatever, or have an accent, we correct for it or we don't correct for it and then can't represent it well on the page. Whereas like when we're just listening to people talk, they're just talking. I guess I'm curious, when you were talking to folks and you were thinking, I mean, because this is, this is audio, was there any point where you're like, okay, this person has like, speaks in too thick of an accent or this person, like, were you hearing it through your ears or were you hearing it through what you imagine like a listener's ears were when you were talking to people? I, do, I totally was listening through my ear. I never, that, ne- that thought never even came across my mind at all. And Emily, you're shaking your head no as well. No, we had such good talkers. Yeah. I mean, what stri- struck me was that everybody we talked to had a story that we could have pursued in the mm-hmm. sense that there was some really interesting part of it. Some of them were more typical than others. Um, and I was seeing patterns, which is a good thing about this process because, you know, you can figure out what's more representative or less. Yeah, I remember bail being something that we were like, you know, someone that, um, either paid bail or bond and had some kind of interaction. So there were a certain aspect. We wanted, we wanted to, to hit, hit your books. Yeah. Your book, you yeah. wanted to hit some of the beats in your book. So that was like a, something that we definitely was considering. Right. And we couldn't use the person who is mainly featured in my book because he wanted to be anonymous. And so we couldn't have him on tape and mm. it, that just wasn't going to work. The other help we got was from this arts organization in Brooklyn called Brick, which was actually doing in this meta way, a podcast and video classes with people in the diversion program from Guncord who we were looking at. So we went to that class mm-hmm. and that was how we found Terrari. Yeah. And that was helpful because he was already interested in this medium and was kind of familiar with it and like came in and sat down with the headphones on, like knew exactly what he was and doing. And exploring this, like thinking about his uncle, right? Or his, Yes. Yeah. He'd made this three minute podcast video about his uncle going to prison, which actually we just like re-found. Um, I mean, the other element that's crucial to the show is the Brooklyn District Attorney, Eric Gonzalez. And I had a... a time we started working on this established relationship with him from my book reporting um but his i mean we'd have to ask him but my sense is like his trust of me understandably grew over time and Mm. he wasn't at all sure and his pr person wasn't at all sure he was going to sit for an interview and then he ended up coming in and sitting for hours and you know the thing about eric which we talk about on the show is like he actually comes from this same world and the same part of Williamsburg just 25 years earlier. And so there's a way in which talking to him is familiar because we've talked to so many of the people his Mm. office is prosecuting. Yeah, that was so none of that had been done um, before I handed the reins over (laughs) to Alvin. And um, I was surprised by just how surprising it was that it was that Eric. You know, there was a moment where I was like, oh, this is, yeah, this is the, 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 yeah, okay, that Eric. And how, like, vulnerable and open he was. It, um, Yeah, and, and, like, race comes up a lot in the, the ways that he talks. Yeah. And what he talks about. And it was actually important to me. I mean, this is a different kind of process, but when I started working on my book, I had to decide which district attorney to focus on. And there were a number of people who are making progressive promises who'd come into office or about to come into office. And I felt pretty strongly that I wanted to feature a person of color because 
nationally, there are very few elected DAs who are people of color. But in this new crop of folks, there were a bunch of people. And so it just seemed like a shame to me to have a white guy at the center mm-hmm. of the narrative. So I just kind of refused to do that. That's very unwhite of you. Nah, well, <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> Maybe I just did it because it was more interesting to no, me. No, but I mean, but, I mean, if you center the people at the heart of the thing that you're reporting that is always more interesting (laughs) i'm so glad to be working with you guys i am too yeah i'm happy to circle back and to be able to continue to be a part of this and to kind of hear how alvin is i hope i don't fuck it up now (laughs) now that you know know how important it is (laughs) good to see you too it's actually great that you're here it's like totally helpful great thank you for coming thank you for having me <laughs> and that's it for this week. To learn more about the whole series, please visit slate.com slash charged. Thank you for your Slate Plus membership. It makes this and other Slate podcasts possible. We'll be back next week.